You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Willie Maley from the University of Glasgow. His paper was entitled Double Dutch, The Boat Brothers and Ireland. So this paper focuses then on two Dutch doctors, the Boat Brothers, Arnold and Gerard, who, upon graduating in medicine at the University of Leiden, moved together in 1630 to London, where Gerard served as physician to Charles I, and then separately on to Dublin in the 1630s and 1640s, where they each landed years apart in Ireland at a time of transformation. The brothers were never in Ireland together. And one thing I've come to realise is that Gerard Boat is the boat we're most likely to know. It's because of Ireland's natural history. But Arnold Boat turns out to be the more interesting or maybe even smarter younger brother. Um, Arnold arrived in Ireland in 1636 and served as physician to two viceroys, Robert Sidney and Thomas Wentworth, as well as James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh, becoming Surgeon General. Gerard, having been appointed physician to the army in Ireland in 1649, died shortly after his arrival there in 1650, two years before Ireland's Natural History was published and several years after the research was completed by his brother. Each brother contributed in key ways to philosophical, religious and scientific debates through connections with the Boyle family and the Invisible College and as part of the Irish branch of the Hartlove Circle. Those Baconian Protestant improvers whose various members included Robert Boyle, Robert Child, John Dury, Miles Simner, William Petty, Robert Wood and Benjamin Worsley. Gerard contributed through the posthumously published Ireland's Natural History, 1652, for which Arnold did the early spade work, and Arnold, through, among other works, an augmented edition in 1653. So that's Ireland's Natural History, 1652, for which, if we know the boats at all, this is what we know. This is how we usually know the boats. For the common good of Ireland, and more especially for the benefit of the adventurers and planters therein, <laughs> is the important uh, uh, proviso there. So that's the work that we, that we know. This work is very interesting because this is a work that Arnold Boat presented as though he had edited it. He augmented it with an appendix on mineral stones. But this is actually the 50, this is the, the, the 1653 publication of a 1594 work, Hugh Platt's The Jewel House of Art and Nature. It is a fascinating book. It's somewhere between John Dee and Francis Bacon, but it's, it's an incredible book of magic and experiments and tricks and illusions and research innovations and so on. And, and this is a republication 50 years later. So, but, but Arnold's to be thanked for bringing this back into public view. Um, but also, most poignantly, Arnold Boat published um, a text uh, uh, 
a richly rendered memoir of the Irish wife he had married in 1642 entitled The Character of a Truly Virtuous and Pious Woman as it hath been acted by Mistress Margaret Dungan. This was published in Paris in 1651 where Margaret died. Margaret was the daughter of a prominent member of the Dublin Protestant gentry, Thomas Dungan, Justice of the Court of Common Pleas at Dublin. Her older brother, William, died at Naseby fighting for Charles. Selected correspondence between Arnold Boat and James Usher um, is published in Richard Parr's 1686 biography of Usher, focusing on the years 1642 to 1655. Uh, Parr was uh, Usher's chaplain. With 300 letters from the Archbishop's Archive, this is a very large work, six letters from Arnold Boat, dated from Dublin 1639 through to Paris 1651, and three replies from Usher. The letters between Arnold Boat and James Usher revolve around traffic in texts and books, the trade in traffic in books, and the, tra- the transcription and translation of particular passages, some of which Arnold Boat did, and some of which he gave out. For example, he had somebody working seven nights on a transcription, which he said they wished they wouldn't have taken it on for ten times the price had they known how much work it was going to entail. But this is so Arnold was also, as it were, subcontracting these commissions. Um, although there's no sense of money changing hands. Arnold's letters to Usher can instructively be set alongside another contra- uh, correspondence that will come to shortly. Now, phrases such as regional history, regional geography and county choreography attach themselves to the boats. Normalisation, if, if you like, is the order of the day. But Stan Mendick says of Leiden, it is significant that this university and the Dutch in general were now beginning to attempt the systematic natural history of their equatorial colonies. Fieldwork was carried out notably in Brazil from 1637 to 44, and the results were published. Such early research into natural phenomena had its effect on Boat, and his work on Ireland was of a similar type. So the regional becomes colonial, if you like. Leiden was an important locus of learning, as we know, Richard Stanihurst had matriculated there as a medical student a generation earlier. Other key figures in Ireland studied medicine at Leiden in the wake of the boats. Edmund Borlase, Robert Child, Nathaniel Henshaw and William Petty. John Dury, who wrote the dedication to Boats Natural History under Hartlib's name, also studied there. The Boat brothers offered insights into the workings of colonialism the limits of archipelagic history and the impact of Dutch intellectual culture on English colonial theory and practice. Building on important work by Keith Hoppen, Charles Webster and Toby Barnard, Nicholas Canney and Pat Coughlin have, in their distinct ways, emphasised the colonial context of the boat's work. Canny, in a superb essay entitled Migration and Opportunity, that opens up an Atlantic dimension that would embrace figures such as Robert Child and Balthazar Gerbe, and Coughlin in a brilliant account of the colonialist assumptions of English scientists based in Ireland. Canny, recognising Ireland's natural history as, quote, a work of propaganda, pushes back the origins of the interest in colonial husbandry as far as Robert Payne and Fane Beecher in the 1580s, But we could go back further still, for example, to Barnaby Goode in the 1570s, 
And Joan Thirsk has invited us to take more seriously what I would call agricultural materialism or the new husbandry, because Gouge became a very significant figure, translating a German specialist in husbandry's work in Latin into English 400 years before it was translated into German, and becoming a key text, that farming manual, four books of husbandry for Massachusetts and other uh, uh, co colonies. Um, as I said, the Boat Brothers are known chiefly through Ireland's natural history, attributed to Gerard with research carried out by Arnold. This work was completed, as I said, before Gerard ever went to Ireland, published two years after his death there. One historian of climate change has called it, this work, essentially, quote, a manual for colonial management. A manual for colonial management. But I want to focus here on a short text, less than six pages, containing correspondence from one, from one brother to another between 26th of April and 11th of May 1642, during that period of research that, that, that Arnold was undertaking for Ireland's natural history. And this is Arnold writing from Ireland to Gerard in London. This text was published as a remonstrance of divers' remarkable passages and proceedings of our army in the Kingdom of Ireland, doctor to the state and physician general to the army to his brother, Dr. Gerard Boat, doctor to the King's Majesty, and so on. So this is the groundwork in some way, or piece of the groundwork for the research that follows. In this short extract can be found the seeds of Ireland's natural history. On Sunday the 1st of May, this correspondence tells us, it's written out as a series of letters, almost like journal entries, but it's presented as extract of, of a letter. On Sunday the 1st of May, Sir Charles Coote's expedition entered Trin, where they make short work of those who haven't already fled, and the reasons for fleeing will become obvious. A few rogues that were found loitering in town were knocked down, and all the women and children whereof there were a great number, Sir Charles commanded upon pain of death to leave the town within two days, intending forthwith to plant it with English in the same manner as he hath done at the mace. Our soldiers got a good, a good deal of pillage here, Sir Charles being come so unexpectedly upon them as they had no leisure to convey away much. This town is sealed upon the Boyne, the same river that goeth down to Drogheda from whence it is distant 15 miles and 20 from Dublin. Standing in a very pleasant and fruitful country, and was the residence of Sir Hugh de Lar, the first conqueror of Meath, it hath abundance of stone houses and castles in it, and may easily be fortified, being of great consequence for the securing of all Meath and Fingal. So you get the brochure element as well as just a little bit of barbarism thrown in. Sir Charles's reputation precedes him. At the Navin, a town upon the same river, halfway between Trim and Rochda, were a matter of 2,000 rebels at that time, when Trim was taken, who, hearing thereof, were so possessed with terror as thinking themselves nothing so secure, nothing secure so near Sir Charles, whose very name is exceeding terrible to the rebels, although the town might easily have been made good by a far less number than theirs, and against far greater forces than those which we had then at Trim. Now, Coote was a veteran, having served under Lord Mountjoy in the last three years of the Nine Years' War, 1600 to 1603. He married the daughter of Hugh Cuff, a contemporary and neighbour of Edmund Spencer's. And those of us who work in the 1580s and 1590s know that the names of the 1580s and 1590s Munster Undertakers are the names of all the families of influence in the 17th century in Ireland, because those names crop up again and again, whether that's Fenton's, Boyle's, and so on and so forth. So Coote was a, a, a veteran and married the daughter of Hugh Cuff. One of many incidents that capture Coote's 
wonderful character is the story of how he hailed an Irishman over while he was on his horse, asked him to blow in his pistol to clear it, and promptly shot him in the face. Reading of Coote's plans for plantations and his atrocities, it's easy to see why he's been mooted by his biographer as one of the causes of the 1641 Rising. But brute force is not all. Guile, too, plays its part. Embedded in Boat's letter, there's two embeddings, but the first one, embedded in Boat's letter is a messenger's account of an earlier action around 19th of April in the north, where we're told, about this time the rebels left Carlingford, a town seated near the mouth of that bay, whereunto the little river running by the Newry discharged itself, and fired it, leaving a garrison in the castle, under which castle a ship sent from Knock Fergus by Mr. Lord, my Lord Conway at the time of his coming away with command to wait on him in that haven, coming to anchor the same time that the Newry was taken, they hung out French flags. Whereupon some of the rebels being come aboard, they told them that they were sent by the French cardinal to relieve them with arms and ammunition and that they would deliver it if some of their principal men would come to receive it. This news being brought to the castle, the commanders of the garrison went aboard, whom the captain, having laid by the heels, went ashore with a good number of his soldiers to take the castle, now deprived of its commanders. Just as he was landed and putting his men in order, there appeared Sir Henry Titchburn, coming down the hill with an army, who, knowing nothing of what was passed, either there or at the Newry, was come hither with an intent to make himself master of that place. The captain, startled at that sight, as thinking they had been enemies, began to retreat and went to get himself to his ship again. When Sir Henry still approaching, they perceived them to be their friends, and so both met with great joy on both sides, and mutual congratulations. And having put a garrison into the castle, the captain returned to his ship and Sir Henry to Dundalk. Now, as I said, there's another embedded section within the, the, the letter. The more you look at texts of this period, the more you realise you're looking at bundles of texts, bundles of texts, whether it's Milton's observations or Jones or Temple or anyone else. You're looking at composite or hybrid or mongrelised texts. There's another embedded section, but this embedded section has its own um, heading. And, and that heading is an extract of a letter from Dean Barnard to me, dated at Drogheda, 28th of April, of some exploits thereabout. Now, Dean Barnard is Nicholas Bernard, who was looking after Usher's library at Drogheda. And he says, The last week Sir Henry Titchburn marched out from Dundalk three or four miles to Bateswood, where he had been informed of Colo McBrien's lurking with a few hundred men, sorry, with a hundred men, burnt the town and killed about 150 rebels without the heart of one man of ours. I think in the six pages of this text there's a body count of about between 700 and 1,000, <laughs> roughly, of the Irish. But that's a lot of, lot of groundwork to be done when you think about it. Burnt the town and killed about 100. Without the heart of one man of ours, yesterday Captain Gibson with some foot and horse marched out from the ends near a dozen miles, killed about 100, fired all the country and returned without the least damage to any. Yet they appeared in diverse little bodies. We have now settled another garrison at Mellifont and make some work that ways also. Now, news travels fast, jumping back from Barnard's extract to his own and to the taking of Newry that he heard about on the 3rd of May. Arnold tells his brother of events in Munster, only to add that, of course, this news has already reached London. It says, this same week we also heard out of Munster and of the brave acts which Sir Charles Vavasour and my Lord of Inchiquin had done upon the rebels, and how, following out of court with only 300 men, they had put my Lord of Muscovy with an army of 3,000 men to the worst, and killed a great many of the rebels. Whereof I will say no more, because I know you have had that news in London a good while since, and before we had it here in Dublin. Now, 
the French, eh, 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 sorry, the French pretense is followed by eh, eh, another, by a Spanish pretense. But are they the same? This is the last part of the extract of Boat's letter from Dublin, the 11th of May, 1642, when he says, Out of Ulster and the parts of Leinster bordering upon it, that the Lord Conway attended with the Scottish Major, together with their forces, have taken the Newry and a castle adjoining their two called Narrowwater Castle, whence were delivered Sir Edward Trevor, Sir Charles Paynes, Captain Smith and others, and that an English sea captain, by a witty policy putting forth the Spanish colours, talk about being fooled twice and learning from your mistakes, have gained Carlingford. When they saw the colours, twelve of the chief commanders of the rebels went aboard and hoped to have ammunition, but as soon as they were aboard, they put them in the hold and, sending his musketeers on shore, took the town. Sir Henry Titchburn, being in the dock, having intelligence that there were 300 rebels in a wood called Babeswood, presumably the same as the Bateswood, beset the wood with horsemen and pikemen and sent his musketeers into the wood, and some of the rebels got into trees and others fled out, but they did not escape above 50 men. This missive between two boats ends with two coots, father and son. Sir Charles Coote Jr., this is Arnold Boat speaking, Sir Charles Coote Jr., who follows his father's steps, met with his forces and made his work with fire and sword amongst the enemies on that side. Since which time Sir Charles Coote is killed accidentally by one of his own lieutenants, who when he perceived the accident, he would have run himself upon his own sword had not a captain prevented him. Now, I think actually in the biographical entry for Charles Coote in the DNB, it might speculate about whether such a thing was true, this se- that, but that seems uh, uh, to, to suggest it is. Arnold Boat's name appears in 1643 as part of a petition published within a set of letters. Again, a petition of the well-affected nobility and gentry of the realm of Ireland who have suffered under the bloody rebels there. The petitions, uh, uh, petitioners hope that the losses of your Protestant subjects may be repaired in such manner and measure as your majesty and your princely wisdom shall think fit, and that this kingdom may be so settled as that your said Protestant subjects may hereafter live therein under the happy government of your majesty and your royal posterity with comfort and security. Knowledge is not only implicated in empire, it's advanced there. There's no science without borders, There's no medicine without frontiers. There are two chapters on bogs in Boat's Natural History, including one on the original of the bogs in Ireland and the manner of draining them practised here, there, by the English inhabitants. Ireland's wetness was a big issue for colonists. It was a big issue for colonists, especially those interested in the ways in which cultivation and deforestation could affect the weather. As Brant Vogel notes in a recent essay on climate change, colonialism and the Royal Society in the 17th century, the English cult of improvement had already made climate changeability a commonplace notion in lands close to home. So in Ireland and the Americans, people who kept journals for 12 years or more could see that something different was happening with the weather. At least they knew they were intervening in some ways in the weather. Now, there's no bog without flies. Mathematician John Wallace, writing to Robert Boyle in 1669, who knew about gases, um, one fellow of the Royal Society writing to another, quoted, (coughs) Wallace quoted, 
from a long oration of satirical invectives against Cromwell, fanatics and the new philosophy by Robert South, canon of Christchurch, including the choice line, the well-known line, they can admire nothing except fleas, flies and themselves. They can admire nothing but fleas, flies and themselves, those new scientists who are a threat to, the, to, 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 to religion. In Cambridge last month, reading around the boats, I picked up a copy of Research Horizons, pioneering research from the University of Cambridge, issue 29. And there was a fascinating article there entitled Think Small, about research into the hunting behaviours of various flying insects, primarily dragonflies and killer, killer flies, about their ability to turn in the air suddenly if a target shifted. Um, research into the hunting behaviours of these various flying insects, quote, to determine how their visual systems influence their attack strategy and what sorts of trade-offs they have to make in order to be successful. And I noticed that the funding for this research came from the United States Air Force. I didn't stop to wonder why. I didn't stop to wonder why. It seems a long way from drains to drones. But the targeted removal of native populations is common to both. It's all about empire, empiricism and impact. How exactly, and, and what they were doing in the 17th century in Ireland and in America, just the fracking of its day, it was the fracking of its day, um, whether it was a strategic or, or, or economic destruction of forests, for example. Now, how exactly the innovations of early modern research communities depended upon, drew on, were driven by colonial design as a vast subject, entailing collective biography, depth bibliography, microhistory, and interdisciplinary engagement or transdisciplinary collaboration, better still. And for that, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.